welcome to the first episode of the Lessons in Literature series on the Matting Wright podcast with me, Drew. Today I'll be discussing the novel Gates of Fire by Stephen Pressfield. I chose this book because Gates of Fire stands as one of the most impactful military stories ever written. To accurately describe my feelings towards the book, I pulled a quote from a literary critique by the name of Nelson DeMille. He writes, quote, an incredibly gripping, moving, and literate work of art. Rarely does an author manage to recreate a moment in history with such mastery, authority, and psychological insights. End quote. And I think this is because Pressfield is a veteran himself. His experiences add value to the story. He was able to articulate his emotions and experiences from the military and incorporate them in the story. And to this day, I believe that there is no better historical fiction novel that discusses team, unity, and cohesion. I'm putting together this podcast to draw knowledge later in life for future reference. That being said, this episode is a complete spoiler of the novel, and although I'm not going into the plot directly, I'm not avoiding the plot if I feel it adds value to the lessons learned. There are many aspects that I did not include from the plot for time purposes. Most are very dramatic and emotional situations that are best explained and received by reading the book. I will discuss more on this at the end of the episode. All page references are relative to my copy of the book, that is the Bantam Trade Paperback Edition, published October 2005, and all rights are reserved to the publishers. This is for education, and all quotes will be cited. So, just as a fair warning, I'm not proficient in Greek, so when I start going through these characters' names, please don't hold it over me if you know the actual pronunciation. <laughs> I'm trying my best. Um, so the story begins after the events of Thermopylae, or referred to as the Hot Gates. The 300 Spartans and select allies were dead, and the king of Persian, Xerxes, ordered to find survivors of this battle for questioning. They find a surviving Spartan squire, and that is how we are introduced to the book's main character, Xenesis, or Zeo as he's called. The story is told through the perspective of a Persian scribe who is detailing Zeo's story as he's on his deathbed. And Zeos is introduced to King Xerxes because King Xerxes, as the king of Persians, was curious as to what kind of men the Spartans were to fight to the bitter end after three days of knowing that their task was suicide. And in Zeos' introduction, he challenges what it is like to die. He begins by describing the physical act of what he perceived to be his death, but he went on to describe the emotion of the experience. He says he saw his loved ones flash before his eyes, but concludes with, quote, I was keenly conscious of my comrades in arms who had fallen with me, a bond surpassing by a hundredfold that which I had known in life bound me to them. I apprehended that excruciating war survivor's torment, the sense of isolation and self-betrayal experienced by those who had elected to yet cling to breath when their comrades had let loose their grip. That was the state which we call life was over. I was dead. End quote. Page one and two. And just it being on page one and two is so purely impactful because that hooks the reader and already introduces them to this idea of camaraderie even through death. And so after we hear that soliloquy, we learn of Zeo's backstory, which is largely irrelevant other than for character development. Essentially, he's an outsider that goes to Sparta in his adolescence to be taken into their ranks to learn to fight. Because he's not a native-born Spartan, he will never truly be accepted into their ranks, other than as a squire, or in other terms, a slave to a Spartan. 
This sticks out for the character because throughout the story, many characters challenge him as to why he fights with the Spartans despite having no loyalty to them. Moreover, he sought out this life and he came to Sparta to be a warrior. And for him never to go back on that commitment or that decision through all of the hardship he goes through as a squire is is truly remarkable for his character development. So, we learn of Zeo, but I want to introduce the listener to two major plot points within the story that I need to fully elaborate on before I start going into the characters. And I'm doing this because it's best to explain these these events in the novel because it makes it easier as a point of reference for me to illustrate some points with the characters. So, the two biggest plot points aside from character interactions is the Spartan battle against Antithyron in the Battle of Thermopylae. And again, I'm butchering Antithyron. However, this is a battle between the Spartans and the Greek state of Antithyron. And so Antithyron is rather rebellious against the Greeks, and Pressfield uses this battle as an introduction to a lot of the emotion that we'll be seeing unfolding during Thermopylae. And many philosophical arguments are built up during this time, and that's ultimately what made the Battle of Thermopylae so impactful. The Battle of Thermopylae, of course, is the dramatic conclusion of the novel that drives home these philosophical lessons, and is the dramatic climax of the novel because of all the characters die. And I bring up these battles because it helps benchmark the plot. So when I talk about the characters and their development, it makes it easier to jump around the plot in order to illustrate the themes Pressfield designed. So as a side note, before we do jump into the characters, I left out a lot of the novel's love drama and the divine intervention the characters are exposed to. It's largely for character development and to build emotional resonance with the reader. There could be some deeper lessons learned from these aspects, but I'm going to leave them out because it's more for entertainment value to the reader than it serves as a lesson learned from the novel. So let's begin the character assessment with Alexandros. Zeo originally met Alexandros prior to the Battle of Antithyron. They were around the same age, and they drilled together as children. He was a beautiful child from one of the most esteemed families in Sparta. However, he was somewhat of a misfit in the Spartans' ranks. Zeo describes him as, quote, He was, however, not constitutionally suited for the role of the warrior. In a gentler world, Alexandros would have been a poet or a musician, end quote, page 66. Alexandros struggles with the role of the warrior. He was a pretty boy who was sensitive to death. After experiencing the Battle of Antithyron, the first military engagement he ever saw, he was unable to sleep. Feeling bad for the losses on both sides, he called war, quote, barbarous and unholy on page 129. His heart, beauty, and character made him appealing for apprenticeship from another one of the novel's main characters, Dianekes, and a target by another character, Polynike. Alexandros was eventually selected to be part of the 300 to fight at the Hot Gates. And I won't talk about Alexandros' death until I discuss the characters of Polynikes and Dianekes and their interactions with each other. Record Dianekes, record Dianekes. So now let's jump into Dianekes. The character Dianekes was the mentor of Alexandros. Dianekes is the philosophical staple in the story, 
in terms of his philosophy, we'll dive into that later. As of right now, we will focus on his relationship to Alexandros. He selects Alexandros from a young age to be his protege, impressed by the youth's potential. Dianekis himself is described as a, quote, student of fear because of his commitment to learn to control fear through the mind. And in the Spartans' profession, their life is war, so Dianekis, being much older and described as being physically destroyed from war, spent much of his time learning from war to mentally process fear. And he teaches these techniques to Alexandros. For instance, on page 78, he teaches Alexandros to relax the body to induce a state of, quote, fearlessness in the mind. And again, on page 139, he argues to develop the habit of self-composure and courage to prevent fear and anger in stressful situations. On the other side, we have Polonike. Polonike is best described as one of the top-ranking Spartans, or knights as they were called. He's also an Olympic champion twice over. Polonike is ultimately for himself, and he believes that the love for glory is the supreme virtue of a warrior. For instance, he was awarded a prize of valor for his acts in the Battle of Antithyron. He is the nephew of Leonidas, and he was described as having the physical attributes of those close to a god in both his looks and his physique. For this reason, he is given the name Callistos, which translates to, quote, most beautiful. He is someone who would manifest his pride into more self-discipline and would, quote, spill over in excess when applied to others less spectacularly gifted than himself on page 123. And away from the book, we all know someone like this. Someone who is so spectacularly accomplished with their own abilities that they have little to no tolerance for those who are not of similar competency. And before going into Polonike's hatred towards Alexandros, we need to compare Polonike and Dianekis. And as I said, Polonike was ultimately out for himself, whereas Dianekis was much more humble. Dianekis, on page 123, revealed that he refused promotion because he felt most himself around the people. He felt he could best lead men in smaller numbers. And so aside from ideological motivations, two characters did clash, mostly over Alexandros. Now Zio, when questioned as to why the two men hated each other, believed it had to do with jealousy. Polonikis envied Dianeki's virtue, which was not a gift to him by the gods unlike his physical beauty and his athletic prowess. In terms of Polonikis' relationship with Alexandros, he absolutely despised him and looked for every reason to discipline him. Even Zio admitted that there was something personal about Polonike's hatred towards Alexandros. And when he went into the reasons as to why he could be jealous, he said, first, it could perhaps be jealousy towards Alexandros's attention from Dionykes, or perhaps pain afflicted upon Alexandros would cause torment to Dionykes, or perhaps it was even jealousy for Alexandros's near beauty. And as a side note, in many of the instances that Polonike is fiercely disciplining Alexandros, Alexandros would most certainly be in the wrong about something, and Polonike would have the right to discipline him for it. However, he often took it over the top. And in regard to the punishment inflicted upon Alexandros, Polonike purposely broke his nose and jaw on two separate occasions. After breaking his nose, Polonike says, quote, 
Your nose was too pretty, son of Olympias. It was a girl's nose. I like it better now. End quote, page 75. Dianekes, who had much contempt towards Polynike for his treatment of Alexandros, called him out after one event of punishment on the child. He says to him, quote, My wish for you, Callistos, is that you survive as many battles in the flesh as you have already fought in your imagination. Perhaps you will acquire the humility of a man and bear yourself no longer as the demigod you presume yourself to be. End quote, page 138. Later in the story, it should come as no surprise that when Alexandros was selected for the 300, Polynike objected, saying he was ill-fit for the battle. All of these character clashes between Dianekes, Polynike, and Alexandros all stand as important when analyzing the death of Alexandros. We haven't gotten into much detail of the Battle of Thermopylae yet, which will be discussed in great detail after discussing the main characters. However, Alexandros did not die in the traditional sense that most of the other characters did. He died after losing his hand during an unsuccessful assassination attempt on King Xerxes. When Zeo observed Alexandros losing his hand from an axe wing, he described time moving slow, as most traumatic events do, on page 339. In the two days of fighting before his death, Alexandros proved himself to Polynike. Polynike himself apologizes to Alexandros for breaking his jaw, saying he was wrong for questioning his bravery when being selected for the 300. And upon his death, Dianekes, known for his stoicism and withheld emotions, was seen by Zeo to have let out, quote, a cry of such grief as I have never heard tore from my master's breast. His back heaved, his shoulders shuddered. He lifted Alexandros's bodiless form into his embrace and held it, the young man's arms hanging limp as a doll's. End quote, page 334. When bearing Alexandros, Polynike finally admitted, quote, he was the best of all of us, on page 347. Alexandros's death stands as an important lesson learned. Polynike's distaste for Alexandros was largely grounded in jealousy, and it took the extenuating circumstances of Thermopylae for him to admit his virtue and character. Perhaps this was a deeper metaphor Pressfield wanted to drive home. From Dianeki and Polynike, we see the ideological differences of egotism versus selflessness, and perhaps with Polynike realizing his faults through the death of Alexandros, this symbolizes virtue and selflessness as the triumphant life philosophy. The next character with stunning lessons to be learned from is Leonidas. Leonidas was the king of Sparta, and Pressfield used his figure to teach leadership philosophy, and that lesson was, leaders lead from the front. Leonidas, as the king, was in every battle on the front lines with his men. After the battle of Antitheron, Zeo noted, quote, Leonidas at this time was 55 years old. He had fought in more than two score battles since he was 20. Wounds as ancient as 30 years stood forth, ludred upon his shoulders and calves, on his neck and across his steel-colored beard. End quote, page 115. Leonidas was incredibly outspoken about the role of a leader in conflict. He critiques the king of Persians by saying, quote, Listen to me, brothers. The Persian king is not a king as I am to you now. 
He does not take his place with shield and spear amid the manslaughter, but looks on from a safe distance atop a hill upon a golden throne. End quote, page 117. By having this approach to leadership, to say he had the full support of his men would be an understatement. Zio has multiple moments where he criticizes the Persian king regarding the role of a leader, and, in fact, refuses to cooperate with the Persians upon hearing that Leonidas' corpse was mutilated following the Battle of Thermopylae. Zio also recalls when Leonidas was killed the final day of Thermopylae. He says to Xerxes, quote, Can his majesty recall the surge within the melee of slaughter when a corps of Spartans hurled themselves into the teeth of the vaunting foe and flung them back to retrieve the corpse of their king? End quote, page 360. And he goes on to note that they did so with less than a hundred men remaining against a army of Persians numbered in the thousands. Leonidas's leadership far extends that of leading from the front. Pressfield was able to use the circumstances of the Battle of Thermopylae to highlight Leonidas's people and management skills. Ultimately, he was faced with the challenge of leading thousands of Greeks into the eminent suicide mission. So how does a leader go about maintaining discipline, standards, and bravery with such conditions? By reading Leonidas' actions during the time, the two biggest aspects he leveraged to maintain morale was his well-respected influence and perspective. In terms of his influence, as already mentioned, he was leading from the front, and that earned the utmost respect of his men but he knew how his body language would affect his troops. Zio noted, quote, Leonidas sought to instill courage not by his words alone, but by the calm and professional manner with which he spoke them, end quote, page 226. More importantly, he strongly encouraged fellow officers to act similarly. Leonidas says to them, quote, you are the commanders. Your men will look to you and act as you do. Let no officer keep him or his brother officers but circulate day long among his men. Let them see you and see you unafraid. Where there is work to do, turn your hand to it first. The men will follow. Some of you, I see, have erected tents. Strike them at once. We will sleep as I do in the open. Keep your men busy. If there is no work, make it up. For when soldiers have time to talk, their talk turns to fear. End quote, page 226. This helps illustrate the other tool Leonidas employed during the time, perspective. Leonidas knew that there was nothing he could tell his men that would keep them highly motivated to continue to fight. By realizing this, Leonidas wanted to ensure that the men were busy at all times to ease their nerves before going into the fight. Zio notes, quote, War is work, not mystery. The king confirmed his instructions to the practical prescribing actions which could be taken physically, rather than seeking to produce a state of mind, which he knew would evaporate as soon as the commanders dispersed beyond the fortifying light of the king's fire, end quote, page 226. In another aspect of perspective, Leonidas also recognized that he was not a subject matter expert on every aspect of battle. He had the humility to ask questions and draw knowledge from subject matter experts like engineers and cavalry officers to make the best decisions regarding their fortifications. The final aspect of his perspective was realizing foremost what the mission was. 
Their mission was to fight and die to unify the Greek states against the Persian and to buy time for this unification. Leonidas alludes to this in his final speech. He says, quote, But our deaths here with honor in the face of these insuperable odds, we transform vanquishment into victory. With our lives, we sow courage into the hearts of our allies and the brothers of our armies left behind. They are the ones who will ultimately produce victory, not us. Our role today is what we all knew when we embraced our wives and children and turned our feet upon the march out, to stand and die. That we have sworn, and that we will perform. End quote, page 353. By having this internal motivation, it puts purpose in their fight at Thermopylae. This is important because on three separate occasions, Leonidas was challenged to retreat. The bigger point Pressfield was trying to make was the culture and commitment of the organization starts at the top, and the leader has to fully fill the role by committing to a vision and applying perspective and leading by example. This made Leonidas a good leader. In the broader picture, these principles allowed the Greek states to repel the Persian army. We will now pivot away from characters directly and begin to discuss philosophical concepts in the story. First and foremost, Pressfield spends a lot of time discussing fear and emotions produced by battle. To fully illustrate the detail in which Pressfield describes the emotion created from battle, I will pull a quote from the beginning of Thermopylae. Through Zio, Pressfield writes, quote, Now the nerves began to scream. The blood pounded within the recesses of the ears. The hands went numb. All sensation fled the limbs. One's body seemed to tremble and wait. All of it cold as stone. One heard one's voice calling upon the gods and could not tell if the sound was in his head or if he was shamefully crying out loud. End quote, page 250. The story is littered with such descriptions. For those who have been in paralyzing positions of fear, many of these are personally relatable and accurate to human nature. Naturally, the Spartans were no strangers to fear. They created a lot of mental mechanisms and philosophy to relax the mind. The character that projects a lot of this philosophy is Dianekes. He has multiple sections where he teaches Alexandros about fear and how to calm the body to have full control over the mind in highly stressful situations. Dianekes was also very inquisitive regarding the opposite of fear. He challenges Zeo by saying, quote, All my life, Dianekes began, one question has haunted me. What is the opposite of fear? End quote, page 231. Naturally, the first response that comes back is fearlessness. Dianekes was quick to dispel this idea by saying, quote, Fearlessness is without meaning. It is just a name, thesis, expressed as an antithesis. To call the opposite of fear fearlessness is to say nothing. I want to know its true adverse as day of night and heaven of earth. End quote, page 231. And before the final fight at Thermopylae, Dianekis dramatically concludes, quote, the opposite of fear is love, on page 333. And he comes to this realization because what is love essentially? Well, love is a relaxation of the body that you can feel comfortable around the people that you're with. And this can be interpreted in terms of relationships or brotherly love, however you want to express it. 
but fear and love cannot coexist. And this is a very important aspect and a very big lesson learned from the novel. Dianeckis also had a huge role in explaining more human nature that comes with stressful situations. In Greek, the Spartans called this catapis, again, another butchering, or possession converted literally. This describes the derangement of senses that comes when terror or anger usurps the mind. And this is described on page 112. This can commonly be referred to as making a very poor decision out of anger, or when a group of people form together in anger, it can be seen as mob mentality. During the Battle of Thermopylae, there's a good example of this, quote, possession occurring. Essentially, many runaway deserters were caught in the middle of the night. The mob mentality of the Greek defenders called for their lives because they were ultimately committing cowardice and leaving behind you know, everything they stood for. And so Dianeckis intervenes and spares their lives. In fact, he even allowed them to leave under the condition that they had to walk in the middle of two rows of defenders and look at their comrades as they were leaving. There were many deserters who remained out of shame because they knew that they were deserting their allies. And then there were also others that called the defenders madmen and quickly took the opportunity to leave. However, in terms of what was accomplished, it reminded the defenders of what they were fighting for, and it saved any additional killing from occurring purely out of anger. And in terms of the tactic Dianeckis used, this isn't uncommon to maintain discipline and to reinforce uh, I guess a standard for what people are fighting for. Uh, the Romans would do this, although they would do it a lot more brutally. And even modern day Navy SEALs do a variant of this, making all those who want to quit the selection process stand in front of their peers and ring a bell to quit. It's public humiliation and it's very powerful. There's also a lot of light shown on the emotional progression through battle. It begins with fear and anxiety prior to the engagement happening, adrenaline during the event, and following the event is an outburst of emotions for teammates, and then the final wave of emotion is best described on page 275 as, quote, a refusal to reckon quarter, end quote, or, in other words, a new sense of resilience and drive. We see this in many competitive sectors of society, uh, you can make an argument to see this in business, but sports is probably the easiest analogy to make. You know, it starts with anxiety leading up to the match, adrenaline from competing, and following is the result of happiness or sadness, depending on the outcome that you share with your teammates. And following that is a new hunger for more competition and a refusal to quit. And though it is taken to the extreme in warfare, these are very basic human emotions that are fully displayed in this novel. The next impactful life lesson that Pressfield discusses in the novel is the strength of women. And with this being a story about Spartans, for me, reading this initially, this wasn't very expected. And I was really naive to some of the points that Pressfield was about to drive home. And the most outspoken character in the novel to teach this lesson is Leonidas. He says, quote, Shall I tell you where I find this strength, friends? In the eyes of our sons and in the scarlet before us, yes, and in the continuances of their comrades who will follow in battles to come, 
but more than that, my heart finds courage from these, our women, who watch in tearless silence as we go. End quote, page 211. He shows a lot of empathy for the burden of women in a life as brutal as the Spartans. Leonidas goes on to say, quote, Men's pain is lightly born and swiftly over. Our wounds are of the flesh, which is nothing. Women's is of the heart, sorrow unending, far more bitter to bear. End quote, page 212. And this kind of drives home another point, is that they always say that the people who survive war are the ones who die. And in essence, for the Spartans and the men to go off and die, the genuine impact of the war is then given to the women who, as Leonidas alludes to, watch in tearlessness as they go off and fight, and among the war survivors. Now, Pressfield really wanted to drive home this message. In the final moments of Zeo's life, he symbolically recalls the story of how Leonidas selected the Spartans of the 300. Leonidas says, quote, I chose them not for their own valor, lady, but for that of their women. End quote, page 372. The reasoning was that in the aftermath of battle, the emotion that would grip the city would need strong leaders to pull together the community and not only endure the loss, but, quote, seizing it with contempt, and Sparta will rally, and in turn, Greece will stand. Page 273. Another interesting aspect of the novel is what modern psychology calls survivor's guilt. This is a phenomenon that occurs when people are faced in strenuous situations and constantly contemplate on what they could have done better in a situation. Naturally, self-assessment is natural for the human mind. But when conjoined with a highly stressful situation, this can be tormenting on the individual mind. Zio notes, quote, The secret shame of a warrior, the knowledge within his own heart that he could have done better, done more, done it more swiftly or with less self-preserving hesitation, this censure, always most pitiless when directed against oneself, gnawed, unspoken, and unrelieved at the men's guts, no decoration or prize of valor, not victory itself, could quite quell it, endure it. End quote, page 128 through 129. And Zeo said this when observing the Spartans following the Battle of Antithyron, but he voiced many similar emotions in his opening statement following Thermopylae. If you take this out of life or death circumstances, surely everyone has a memory from sports, a relationship, or a career decision that they look back on a stressful situation and ask themselves what they could have done better. Personally, I'm no psychologist, and I would describe myself as extremely self-reflective, but survivor's guilt is so incredibly damaging on the mind, it should be avoided at all costs. It's fine to take something as a lesson learned, in fact, that's even the purpose of this podcast, but if horrible emotion is accompanied with the experience, it's only going to tear you up thinking back on it. So following all of these big aspects of the novel, now this brings me to the next section, which I entitle Miscellaneous Tales. And I use this time to summarize a lot of oddball things about the novel 
that just don't really have a home in any other category described. So the first thing I took a note towards was the scene of a resilient Spartan trainee who pushed himself through an exercise that was designed to build a tolerance to pain. The trainees would receive a lashing and would tap out when they found their limit. The boy in question, renowned for his fortitude and pushed by his own personal pride, never tapped out the exercise till he was literally flogged to death by drill instructors. And this was on page 32. I remember reading this story for the first time and thinking of the child's stupidity to put his pride above all else and never really drawing the line between being hurt and being injured. Obviously being hurt as, uh, as you know, momentarily suffering, whereas being injured is a grave consequence and you found your limit and you need to stop. And in between reading this story and putting together this podcast, I found myself in a situation where I broke my ankle to the point of surgery. My personal pride wouldn't let me quit, and I proceeded to walk a mile with at least an additional 50 pounds of extra weight on myself until I finally allowed myself to get help. And there seems to be a strong linkage of young men and the need to prove themselves. As noble as they may think it may be, uh, there are many times that they're going to put themselves in horrible positions because of their inability to see beyond their pride. And following my, my personal circumstances and this story within the novel, this is an anecdote that I'm never going to forget. Switching gears... The final thing I'd like to share regarding this novel is the tale of the tinker during the Battle of Thermopylae. He wasn't a citizen of any of the city-states that were fighting in the battle. He purely sought them out after traveling to Thermopylae and worked to fix the survivors' equipment and to tend their wounds. He acted as a, quote, unofficial chaplain and confessor to all the young warriors, page 282, and he was very well-liked among the men. His humor and inside jokes kept morale high and their minds off current events. He was a tinker by trade, and he slowly sold all of his possessions, and many speculated that, like the warriors of Thermopylae, this tinker wasn't planning on leaving. He was indeed killed, and Zeo noted, quote, a Persian arrow tore the man's throat out. He fell so fast he seemed to vanish straight into the earth. And in the same quote, Zeo goes on to say, Quote, fierce fighting broke out over his corpse. Why? He was no king or officer, only a stranger who tended to the young man's wounds and made them laugh. End quote, page 308. I believe the tinker fully embodies the concept of selfless service. He had no loyalty to these men, but he understood the importance of the situation, and he acted noble by doing all he could. This generated tremendous respect by all of the soldiers. And with that, from my perspective, that is all the large lessons and stories to be learned from the novel. Of course, in order to cut down on time, I cut some material from the story, in particular the characters of Zeo, Rooster, Lady Arete, and King Xerxes. If there is interest, I can do a short part two of this podcast and discuss those characters, or even expand on some of the ideas that I included in this episode. As always, thank you for listening, and stay tuned for the next episode.